welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher. Today, for our last episode of season five, I am talking to writer Walter Mosley. Walter is best known for his mystery books about Detective Easy Rollins based in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Watts, including Devil in a Blue Dress, which was adapted for film in the 1990s. He's written more than 60 books, sometimes writing two books in a year. He's mostly known for crime fiction and mysteries, but he's also written sci-fi, nonfiction, he's written for TV, and has a couple of plays under his belt. He is also a huge comic book fan and has written for Marvel, including the 2005 book Maximum Fantastic Four and his current six-issue miniseries starring one of his favorite characters, Ben Grimm, The Thing. Let's hear my conversation with Walter now. I'm very excited to get to interview you. I am having so much fun reading this thing run. I know you're having Mm -hmm. so much fun writing it, but I kind of want to start at the beginning. You have done so much incredible work, like mystery, fantasy, Afrofuturistic themes, like brimming over with history and social political work. How does your love for fantasy and mystery start? Like, where is this all rooted for you? And hmm. why did you decide to start writing? It's a good question. You know, the like the only thing I haven't really written is romance. And there's, I mean, there's romance in my books, but I haven't written in the romance genre. But, you know, I've written in everything else. I mean... Almost everything. So that's just, you know, me liking everything. I'm an only child. My mother was an only child. My father was an orphan. So, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, telling myself stories when I was a kid. And my father loved it if I told him stories. And so I think that that made me a writer. But I didn't start writing until much, much later. I was in my 30s, 34 when I started. But it was always inside of me. And then once I started writing, like all this stuff came out. You know, I don't consider myself a mystery writer, but I've written a lot of mysteries because that was the first thing I wrote and people kept paying me to do it. So I kept doing it. But, you know, then what was it? About a year ago, they came to me and they said, well, listen, it's the 60th anniversary of the Fantastic Four. And we hear you like the thing. So you want to write a thing comic? And I went, sure, let's do it. That's great. That's really fun. You know, it's just because whatever you write, if you get the job to sit down and start writing something, then it's great. I mean, you go through it, you try to figure it out, you try to make it work. Whatever you write, you have to kind of change how you're writing to fit whatever it is. So, you know, the first few people who were reading the thing, they were very worried because Walter Mosley's a novelist, so it's just going to be all these words, 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 you know, and I don't do that. I love it that there's so many frames with no words at all because all you have to do is see the character do, you know, I wrote down, he's walking down into the tunnel under the city. Well, okay, fine. So you draw that. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to put a little box on the top. He's walking down into a tunnel. That was just so much fun for me. But, you know, everything. You know, right now I'm working on a couple of television shows. And it's great. Well, how do you write that? You know, because that, again, it's not about language particularly. You're writing, but the least important thing in film is dialogue. Well, I think, and you've said it before, and I think it really goes back to your love for the character, right? And you've said it before, and I'm going to paraphrase. I'm never going to get it right. The character will tell you what to do if you have created a good character. But you have this particular love for the thing. But also, you're just a massive comic book fan. Like, 
You've been reading comics since you were a preteen. You had the unique and awesome experience of reading the Fantastic Four as it was hitting shelves. You literally grew up as these characters' mythos was being created. What was it about comics? Why have you been so engaged for so long? I kind of, I mean, I didn't learn how to read reading comics. I was reading other things before them. But the stories in comic books completely captured my imagination. The first Fantastic Four I owned was number 15 with the Mad Thinker and his awesome android. And, you know, I'm a kid, right? But I'm saying, this is real. And meaning to say that when you say something is real, you're saying something is speaking to me and making me believe it. And that was just the case. I mean, the thing, you know, with his, like, urban genre, I ain't gonna do that. You know, I mean, it's just like, that's who the thing is. I know lots of people who talk like that, I thought, when I was a kid. You know, Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, the Human Torch, who, you know, he's a teenager, so he's a hothead. All of that, I don't know. I mean, it was the most important thing to me for many, many years. And I'm not saying it's the most important thing to me anymore, but I still love comics. I mean, I'm completely daunted by them. When you're a kid... You know, they had those wire racks, and there's like four different sides or five, I don't know, and there are eight rows. That's how many comics Marvel could have. They could have eight comics. And so if you wanted nine, you had to cut one in half, and well, it'd be half Captain America and half the Submariner or whatever. So you could only buy eight comics a month. Now you can buy like 50 or more. And it's just too much for me. I just can't. But I do love comics. And I have many thousands of them in New York. I love it. So for you, were there any particular writers or artists that you were just a huge fan of? Like, Because we all have our favorites. Well, you know, there are a few, but there's really only one. It's only Jack Kirby. And about maybe 10, 12 years ago, I published a book with Marvel Fantastic Four number one with every frame blown up to at least full page size. You know, and I had this idea, you know, I started doing it at home and I was going, oh my God, looking at the frames at full page size brings me back to when I was a kid. Because, you know, when I was a kid, I could look so closely and it's like I was devouring it. And I went over to Marvel in New York and I said, you know, I said, listen, we got to do this. This is going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. And they've said, well... All right, you know, we, we've already done reprints. I said, but I'm going to make it the full size. It's going to be, a, you know, and there's a moment. The first picture of the Mole Man, I said, look at this picture. This is like Goya, the painting. This is great. And really, it was so funny because the people there were embarrassed that I said that. They were embarrassed for me. You know, they were thinking, oh, my God, he thinks that a comic book artist is as good as one of the greatest painters in history. And, and I do. But then later on, a year later, I was in L.A. and I went to Marvel and I had a meeting with Avi Arad, who was the president at the time. And I said that to him and he completely got it. And he said, OK, let's let's do it. And we did. And it was I was so happy. But, you know, Kirby, it's really a, a hard thing to talk about. And there are other people. I think I mean, everybody loves him as a writer and, and he's a good writer. But I've always loved Frank Miller's drawings. When he started drawing Daredevil, I'm going, wow, he's actually doing what Kirby was doing in a very different way. But it's movement. Everything is movement. What you're looking at is and, and really, the great painters, all the great painters, all the way back. If you're just doing a portrait, you're not really doing anything. But if you can put a person in motion, you can put a world in motion, like the world we live in, then it's great. The thing about action, there's a real aesthetic to it. 
I know you, like some other fans that I know, related to characters like the Hulk and then also like very specifically Ben Grimm for a number of reasons. One is that he is different, right? And it's been alluded to previously that his skin as the thing is considered both by you very expressly in the comic, but also in subtext and coding in comics past of him being non-white. For folks who are curious about some of that, definitely go see Fantastic Four 119. But also, Ben, like you, he's canonically Jewish, right? You've spoken about that and how you've related to him and how he's been treated in comics. Do you remember any other comic stories or characters that you related to as comics evolved and became more inclusive? Well, you know, Marvel was really good. Marvel is like a Jewish company. I don't know what it is now, but I know way back, you know, in the beginning, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, it was a Jewish company and had that concept. And so you have the thing. But then again, you have Spider-Man. You know, you can't see anything on him. He's stronger than anybody else. He's always in trouble. He's always late. The only way that he can make money is to take pictures of himself in maybe criminal acts. He has a single parent. It's not even a mother. It's an aunt. You just kind of go, wow. But then you have the Submariner. The Submariner is, you know, a half surface, half Atlantic. And the Hulk, you know, I mean, really, the Hulk is way off on some other end somewhere, you know. There's so many incredible characters which in themselves are, I mean, they're not, you know, quote, modern day thinking African-American characters, but what they are is they're people who are different and people who are either angry because of how people have treated them or people are treating them in that way. You know, the Submariner, look, man, you blew up all my people. I'm going to destroy you. You blew up my people. That is something that a lot of folks don't talk about, which is this idea that before there was visual representation and the authenticity of representation as it's evolved in the industry, whether it's comics or TV or stage, there was always this art of people of color or people who are from different backgrounds finding themselves in the story. That's pretty incredible because then when you think about it, you orchestrated Maximum Fantastic Four in 2005. And I want to go back to Kirby for a second because I don't want to miss this. Like that basically was your love letter to Jack Kirby. Like it was basically the love letter to the art of the original Fantastic Four. Like you're now being able to bring that art, that love to a whole nother generation of comic book lovers. Why do you feel like that's important? I mean, it's important, I think, following what you're saying, because I love it. I mean, somebody else might not like it. You know, the whole aesthetic of comic books has changed over the years. About every 20 years, it changes pretty drastically. You start in, a, you know, like 1940, and then you go to 1960, and then you go to 1980, and then, you, you know, 2000. And it has big changes, but it also has a history, a history that it doesn't shake. And so I love it. And if somebody else likes it, I'm really happy. You know, like I've written, you know, the new thing. If you learn something from it, that's really good. It's really good, and I'm very happy. But if not, that's okay. You know, you don't have to because, you know, we're telling the story, right? And the story is what needs to live on. When you think of the whole comic book, you know, universe, the thing is kind of just a normal mortal. You know, he can die. He's kind of strong, but he's not all that strong. He's not as strong as the Hulk. He's not as strong as Galactus. He doesn't have any powers other than that physical strength to lift and to break. 
But then my whole idea of writing this new comic is to put him in a position of cosmic importance because that's kind of how I feel about him. You know, it's not only that the cosmic rays changed him, but it's that there's something about his character which, you know, you can love. There is this very unique thing that you do with Ben Grimm in this story where he continuously is living his daily life and he is continuously accosted by the police because he's different and misunderstood. And as he is literally being he is seen as a threat and it's such an interesting juxtaposition of being a hero that is a threat, but also a hero with a heart that just wants to live a kind of normal life that is really shining through in this story. What was it that made you kind of craft this beautiful story that's spotlighting black characters? How did you decide this was the story you were going to write? Because it is taking us everywhere. I don't completely remember because I know I, I started writing it and I wanted a kid who has a secret to be helping him. And I wanted a new girlfriend, at least for these uh, six episodes. And may I say, well done. Oh, you like her? That's nice. I do. I do. She's delightful. Amaryllis. I like Amaryllis. She's interesting and she has deep secrets. Everybody does, you know. Bobby Spector does. Amaryllis DeJour does, you know. And I just wanted to write about... We were talking about the past 60 years, so I can go all the way back to the beginning and I can start picking up characters like Hercules and Doctor Doom and the other members of the Fantastic Four. And then later on, the champion of the elders, you know, and making these characters, you know, exist. And then the Silver Surfer will be there. And then, you know, other more cosmic characters. That's just what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about all of them. So, you know, I came up with a story where I could kind of string them all together. Well, that's the beauty of the Marvel Universe, right? It is all connected. Like, why can't the Silver Surfer come in and help Ben Grimm? Like, why not? And when I was a kid, that was the thing. All of a sudden, just after the first annual, the Green Goblin is there, and so is the Hulk and the Enforcers. You know, and you're going, oh, wow, how does all this work? You know, like as a kid, I'm looking at it. I'm so excited to see it. You know, it's like, wow, Spider-Man met the Hulk. Oh, no, because, you know, there was a time when comic books, each character only lived in their own world. It was just a wonderful thing. And then, you know, being able to write this comic book about the thing, I was able, you know, to talk about a lot of those characters, you know, just to see how they deal with each other. You know, this has been 60 years, right? Over 60 years of Fantastic Four. Like Ben's mythos has changed and evolved. His relationship with Alicia has changed and evolved. He's been all over the galaxy. Like from the very beginning of the story, you have Ben's daily life just deconstructed. First couple pages, everybody's gone. He's by himself. Why was it important to start kind of with, I wouldn't say a clean slate, but kind of a clean slate for Ben for this story, but also what aspects of Ben's character within his mythos did you want to bring out in the story? Because you do make a lot of really wonderful nods to his origins of his stories in the 60s and the 70s. Well, you know, the wonderful thing, I mean, it wasn't my idea. They said, will you do a miniseries on the thing? And I said, okay. But I realized once I started doing it, well, this is really great because I can get into his character. You know, when he wants to sign up with the dating service, 
they say, what's your race? And he goes, well, uh, non, non-white, I guess. You know, or when they start to say, well, what's your greatest strength? So, well, I never give up. Says, what's your greatest weakness? Well, I never give up. You know, and it's like, there's a thing about him that he, I mean, some people say, well, you know, you're your own greatest enemy, but that seems like you have a choice. And he has no choice. He gets in his way. He walks into a room and people run. They're afraid of him. If you spray mace in his eyes, it goes backwards. He's going to knock a compact car across the street. It's not his fault, you know, but, you know, he's in trouble. He has that temper. He can't help it. It was so much fun because I could, you know, begin to work with who he is, what his character is, and, and what it means. And, you know, maybe set up some stuff for the future that we might wonder about, you know. He's going to have a place in infinity that nobody else has. Right now, we got five issues of the story out, right? We have gone to the moon. It has started to become very abundantly clear that Bobby is a lot smarter than he is letting on. You've had all of these wonderful cameos from some of our classic heroes. Reed seems to be very concerned about been but is still off in Russia what else can you tell us about this run like what can folks are eagerly anticipating the final issue looking forward to in a very backwards way Ben is going to save the universe he's going to back into it. it's not going to be like a straightforward you know Thor fighting Erishim the judge or something you know it's not that it's much more that he's just trying to do what's right And in doing what's right, well, you know, Dr. Doom wants to do one thing, and it's the wrong thing, but it's something that needs to be done, but it also needs to be controlled. And Ben manages to do that. And in the end, the universe doesn't have to accept being saved, but it does. And that's who he is. You know, it's it's not a person whose sense of right and wrong or or justice or whose power, you know, like Superman, will change everything. Everything gets changed, but he's more a part of the world in that changing rather than the agent that changes everything. I mean, he's lucky to be alive from the beginning, but he he does survive, which is his talent, and he does what's right, even though he may not quite know that he's doing what's right. And, you know, that's the thing about all living creatures, humans included. I love it. Well, I kind of also want to talk about a little bit of your other work. You started writing at 34 and you have not stopped. Stage, screen, TV, graphic novels, YA novels, mystery. You have written so much. What are the stories left that you want to tell? Well, who knows? I mean, I wrote a, a story once, a novel called Debbie Doesn't Do It Anymore. And I was talking to somebody. We we're talking about whatever. And I said, well, you know, Debbie doesn't do it anymore. And I went, wow, what a great title. That would be a great title. I need to write it, but I don't know what it's about. And finally, one day I sat down and I wrote this book, it's a pretty serious book, but it was so much fun to write. And I think that that happens a lot for me. Somebody might hire me to do something you know, like The Thing or my work with uh, Snowfall. I've been in it since the beginning. The re- way I got into it was I got a call from John Singleton one day and John said, Walter, I need you to come out and be with me in the writer's room for this snowfall. And I went, but John, you know, I don't write television. I don't know. This was about six years ago. And he goes, it doesn't matter, Walter. You, you don't have to write. All you have to do is be an advisor. Just be in the room with me. And I said, okay. Because I'm a writer, right? 
It's like saying, I'm a soldier, you know. If you're a soldier, you do whatever you, they need you to do, and you try to do your best at doing it. And that's how I see it. So the structure of it, sometimes it's structured, you know, like hiring me to write the thing, which I yeah, I love the thing, so it's not I would take no money for it. I promise not to tell anybody that you would do it for free, though. Well, it's, it's over now. I said, you know, <laughs> so like it can't, it can't happen again. I can say it because it doesn't matter. Oh, man. The thing that I love about this is that you have clearly loved stories and fantasy, but like you've talked about the fact that you did see something missing in these stories when you were a kid and you've been able to spend your life fixing that, even in some small part for folks who are seeing things and whether it's I mean, that's even how I look at Bobby. Like I keep looking every time I, I read that character in the thing, I'm like, I feel like. It's a little Walter Mosley in this comic, <laughs> just a little bit. This little kid who is wanting to do good and wanting to be helpful. You know, you've been able to change that paradigm through your work. Well, you know, I just want to say, just to talk about Marvel, that's what Stanley and Jack Kirby did. They did Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, right? And it's like, oh, well, okay, well, who's going to be the Howling Commandos? So, well, well, it's going to be a Jewish guy, of course, because, you know, we Jewish, so we're going to be a Jewish guy. We need a black guy. All right, so there's going to be a black guy there. And, and there's the whole group comes together. And they said, we can make this happen. And they did. And it's just, I'm still doing that. I'm saying, well, okay, I can make things happen. I can write this book and this will happen. I can write this and that will happen. Okay, I'll write a, a book about somebody with Alzheimer's. And let's see what goes on there. Because, you know, you just have to put your people into these stories. Well, and I think it's also going, why not? Yeah. In a big way, that's the most important thing. There's an incredible artist, black guy, did a lot of work in L.A. He's in New York now, David Hammonds. And David broke all the rules. He has a barbershop downstairs from him, so he goes downstairs and he scoops up all his hair, you know, black hair, of course, black people in, in South Central. And then he glues the hair to a rock, a big rock. And then he takes the rock to a barber and says, well, if this was a guy's head, how would you cut the hair? And the guy cuts the hair. And that's his art. You know, and it's just like you have to open up so many doors for yourself in order to get to that place. And somebody says, well, I'm, I can draw a portrait. So, well, maybe I can draw a portrait. What's in you? I mean, most people can't even say. I think that Kirby and Lee and I try my best, you know, to be a person. So, well, OK, what am I going to do today? Because, you know. Most people who do most things, like, you know, they say, well, how can I be most successful? Which means how do I make the most money? Which, okay, you know, you can do something. Just do this again and again and again and again, and you're going to make a whole lot of money. After the 10th thing, you're not going to be doing anything. Your brain won't even be working anymore. But you'll do something, you know, okay. The great thing about comics in America, I mean, from Zap Comics to Mouse, that's some extraordinary experiences to see a world in a completely different way and to make it a real thing. You know, that's extraordinary. For those who are reading stuff, those who are out here, anything else you want to say to Marvel folks or any other cool projects you have coming up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, listen, I'm doing all kinds of things. I'm going to do the, uh, hopefully I'm doing a film for Louis Armstrong, also for Apple. And then I'm trying, starting to pitch the new Easy Rollins series. Hopefully I'll be able to do it. I, I made a deal with Amblin as the producers. There's just so many 
you know, things to do and ways to think. You know, I, was, I have a character, a kind of a comical character, but he's in mysteries called Fearless Jones. I talked to Anthony Anderson the other day about that. He's interested in, in going in that direction. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, to do and to enjoy and to feel and that express, you know, who we are and what we are. It's one of the great things, you know, listen, there are a lot of bad things about America, but that's one of the great things about America. People are saying, well, you know, listen, what do you want to do? You know, it's the hardest question when you ask people, what do you want to do? And they go, I don't know. But Spider-Man can tell you the answer to that. Ben Grimm can tell you the answer to that. So I don't really need to say, but I think that if you look at the world you're living in, there's great potential. Thank you so much, Walter, for coming in and being a guest on Marvel's Voices. Y'all, you got to go check out this series. The Thing Issue 6 is out next week. It is so much fun. Make sure it is on your pull list. Make sure you have got it bookmarked. Pick it up wherever you get your comics. All right. That's it for our season, friends. I've loved this season so much, and I hope you did, too. The producers and all of the incredible folks on our team have worked so hard to continue to bring amazing stories of incredible creatives to you. And it has been my pleasure for the last five seasons to be able to talk to these amazing creators about their work, their experiences, and why they love the Marvel Universe. Now, we'll be back soon for season six. And make sure you're still checking out the Marvel's Voices anthologies, the Marvel's Voices Spotlight series, and maybe a couple things we have yet to announce. And in the meantime, make sure you check out the other podcast I host with my amazing co-host Ellie Pyle and Judy Stevens, the Women of Marvel. It starts up again for a new season at the end of April, so make sure you're subscribed to that too. Talk to you soon. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina. <laughs>